0: I don't know about you, but I take things personally. I like things personal. That's right. I like personal trainers, personal assistants. I like things personal. And that's why I have my own personal therapist. That's right. If you go to betterhelp.com, you too can have your own personal therapist. Why not? I like things personalized. I like my phone personalized, my uh, car, all the different gadgets I have. I want them personalized to me And when you go to betterhelp.com, you get your own therapist who's going to be personalized to you. You know, if you read a self-help book, that's for everybody. That's for the generalized people. But you get your own personal therapist when you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. And you'll get 10% off your first month And when you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Get your own personal. I like to call them pocket professionals because you don't have to go into an office. It's right there on your phone. You can call. You can chat. You can text. Get your own personal therapist. Right now, go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo and let's get to tomorrow together. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Cheryl Odell, who is part of a documentary called I Hate You, But It's Killing Me. Cheryl O'Dell, is it, is it, but you're killing me, but it's killing me, right? But it's correctly? killing me. But it's yeah. killing me. I, I, I'm excited to have you on because I completely relate. Um, I've had to forgive so many people in my life that I've, I've hated and just realized that it's just doing nothing but multiplying cancer cells in my body. But your story is a little deeper than that. At the age of 13, you had an argument with your father and it led you to wanting to uh, a suicide attempt. Can you tell us about that, Cheryl?
1: Yeah, um, I would say like, the argument definitely was something that I think pushed me over the edge, but it had been building up for a long time at that point. Um, My dad struggled a lot with um, addiction to alcohol specifically. And he just suffered a lot in his life um had a lot of just unresolved trauma a lot of pain and a lot of times that came out towards me as extreme anger extreme sadness uh codependency a lot of different things and a lot of love as well uh and genuine care and kindness um he taught me a lot of really valuable lessons but you know going through that as a young child i had a lot of hurt and a lot of pain and Um, just didn't really know how to navigate that relationship. Um, And I think it affected a lot of how I viewed myself. Um, So, yeah, I would say the the argument was a bit of a tipping point. But prior to that, I think there was a lot of buildup.
0: You talk about hurt and sadness on both your part and the part of your father. Tell me, first of all, where do you feel hurt in your body? Where do you experience that?
1: Wow, that's such a good question. I um I feel it in my heart actually, like in my chest. Um yeah, I would say in my heart.
0: And that hurt, does it does it move to other parts of the body or where does it go from there?
1: I think for me, like probably to my head. Um, but I would say that's more of like my thoughts. Um running rampant, I think a lot of like tension um, in my head. So I would say, yeah, like through my heart and to my head.
0: So take us into the thoughts, uh, because a lot of times, you know, we're not aware, first of all, that we are experiencing hurt. And, and also we're not aware where we're even feeling it in our body. And then the, the thoughts that are associated with feeling hurt versus anger, or sadness or you know or joy or excitement what what are the thoughts for you that are associated with feeling hurt
1: I would say in the past when I felt hurt a lot of the thoughts that would come up were a lot around guilt um feeling like the way that my dad was was somehow my fault um or something that like I was doing wrong and that spiral would lead me until then like Then what am I worth if I can't even help my dad? Then, like, what's for me? Like, I think I, I thought saving my dad and helping my dad was like my sole purpose on this earth as a child. For me, it was um, like saving him from himself. Uh, My dad was very suicidal, and he often expressed that to me as like throughout my entire childhood. Um, He just he shared a lot of his trauma, a lot of his pain with me, but also like. I think how that made him feel. Um, so, and obviously he struggled with addiction. So I know like consuming that much alcohol isn't healthy for you. Um, and I, throughout my childhood, I don't know if it was that he actually got worse or I became older and more aware. But, you know, I started to just see how, how sad he was. And oftentimes I was very, very afraid, very in fear of like him taking his own life. Um, every time I like had to go to school or go to tennis practice or go anywhere where he wasn't, um, that was a constant fear that I had. Um, yeah.
0: So it sounds like being away from your father, you felt like if I'm this far away, I may not be able to save him in time. Yeah. Where did that, that feeling or idea of having to save your father come from? Where's your mom at in the, in this whole picture?
1: So my parents separated uh, since I've they were separated since I was a baby. Um, So I never lived with both parents. Um, I would go back and forth between households a lot from when I was born till I was about eight years old. And during that period of time, I was actually living with my mom five days a week and going to my dad's house twice a week on the weekends. And my mom also struggled with addiction uh, to alcohol specifically and. You know, she was a lot different than my dad. I would say that was the only like commonality they had was kind of their addiction. And outside of that, my mom was very unemotional, where my dad was extremely emotional, very verbal, communicative, uh, very present in my life. Whereas my mom, you know, she just wasn't around much. And I think when I was young, you know, and, you know, my dad would say things about my mom on occasion good and bad, but it would confuse me. Um, And I think from, from birth to like eight, I was with my mom majority of the time. And during that time, I actually had a lot of hate towards my mom because I thought I interpreted how my dad was as like what love was. And so when I wasn't receiving that same thing from my mom, I thought like, she must hate me. Um, And I didn't understand like why like why she hated me or why she didn't care about me, where obviously now looking back, I know that's not the truth. Um, But at the time it felt so real. And so I was very resentful of her. Uh, And then when I was about eight, my parents got in a custody battle and my dad ended up getting full custody of me. And it was supposed to flip flop where I would go to my dad's five days a week and then go to my mom two days a week. But at that point, you know, I had a lot of I think there was multiple things motivating me, but I had a lot of hate towards my mom. But I also had a lot of fear of like, I didn't want to leave my dad alone. And he would make me feel really guilty when I would want to go see my mom. So eventually, I just completely cut my mom out of my life for about. I think like three years. Four years.
0: I can't imagine that was an easy experience. It sounds gut wrenching. Uh, and heartbreaking to have to cut your mom out at that age. Uh, how did you cope with it at that point?
1: At that point, well, I had a super codependent relationship with my dad. So on one side of it, in the beginning, I was actually like at the time, extremely happy because so I was like, "Yay! Like I finally get to like be with my dad," and that was something I'd wanted for a long time because I had a lot of just resentment building up towards my mother. Um, But once I started living with my dad full time, I definitely had moments where I I did want my mom in my life. I did want at least like a mother figure. Um, And I didn't really have that during that time and really like growing up because she was gone a lot. And so I definitely did crave that. But I think my dependency on my dad kind of overpowered that feeling or that need where I was, even when I would ask my dad, like, Hey, can I, you know, my mom called, like, she wants to know if I can come over for the night uh, or have dinner. And then he would get really sad or really angry. And he'd be like, you're leaving me. Like, you don't want to live with me anymore. You don't, you don't care about me. You don't love me. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. Like I'll just tell her, like, I don't, I don't want to go. Um, and so even when I started feeling like I wanted to have my mom in my life, it, it almost seemed like it wasn't an option um, because I was so scared of, you know, hurting my dad. And yeah.
0: So how, how old are you now, Cheryl?
1: I'm 21 now.
0: You're 21 now. And you talked about love earlier of like, you know, your mom didn't exhibit love the way your father did. And so it felt like at times your mom didn't love you. How do you perceive love now versus you know, growing up a, as a kid?
1: That's such a good question um, because I think growing up as a kid i I thought love was codependent. I thought love was something that you get from other people. Um, and I think through my own healing in myself and in my relationships with both my parents, I just came to for me, love is not something that you take from someone or someone gives to it something that you nurture in yourself um and i think i found this like place where i have this very self sustaining sense of love where this love that i have it isn't isn't based on what my mom does or what my dad does or what anyone else does it's based on like my choices and who i choose to be and you know what i choose to let go of in my life and so totally different version of love than when I was a child. Um but a very I think much more fulfilling and sustaining version.
0: What choices or choice have you made today that felt loving and nurturing towards yourself?
1: That's such a good question. Uh I think well this morning I got up and I meditated. Uh, I went for a really nice walk outside. I live in Vegas, so it's really, really hot outside, but I actually really love the heat. Um, So those were just like two examples of how I exhibited that today.
0: I love that. And then so what was the when you, you, you know, we talked about feeling loved and nurturing. You meditated, you went for a walk. Were there any other feelings that were associated post meditation and walk?
1: I think gratitude. I think presence. Um, I think for me, meditation has actually been a really big part of my own like healing journey because for a long time, I would say I believed every single thought and feeling that came to me. And I didn't really have the emotional intelligence to realize that like, Oh, like I don't have to listen to all these thoughts and feelings that are coming to me all the time. Like they were just automatically like who I was. And now I feel like I've nurtured this ability to be able to separate myself from those thoughts and feelings and kind of just take agency over my life. be like, I get to choose like how I respond to these thoughts and these feelings um, by like for me, meditation was just a way of like cultivating that. I think awareness that like, okay, like, I can get these thoughts and feelings, but then I can notice them and I can come back to like just being here right now and I get to like take action and choose, you know, what I'm going to do with that and if I'm going to feed it or not.
0: Is meditation the only way you've been able to gain distance between your thoughts and responses? Uh, Because part of that sounds like some cognitive behavioral uh, stuff in there. Is that part of what's helped you in his journey?
1: So I would say definitely meditation is not the only thing. It's been probably one of the most powerful pieces for me, but uh, I've done a lot of, actually, if I rewind a little bit when, so when I was 13, I had ended up attempting to take my own life twice. And after you do that, you get sent to like a psychiatric hospital. They hold you there for X number of days. And, It was a very, the first time I went there, it was a very miserable experience for me. Um, And I didn't, you know, find, I think the support, nor was I willing to, I think, do the work or change the way that I was, I think, acting in my life. Um, But yeah, it was just a very difficult experience the first time around. And then the second time around, I, right around that time, I'd become affiliated with an organization in Las Vegas called the Inspiring Children Foundation. Um, that like helps at-risk youth with their physical, emotional, and mental health, and I was very like fortunate that they kind of just fell into my life through a tennis program I was a part of, and through that I met this guy named Ryan who is now like a second dad to me. He's a mentor. Uh, he's probably been one of like my key support systems in my healing journey, and I remember you know, he, I had opened up to him about what I was going through and he came and visited me in the psychiatric hospital the second time. And he gave me this project. And at the time we called it my dirty dogs, but now I just say it like, you know, the thoughts in my head and my mission at the psychiatric hospital was to write down every single thought that I got throughout the day while I was there. So he gave me a journal he said, that's, that's your only job. You're just going to write down all of your thoughts. And it gave me something, you know, I went back into the psych ward with it. I think a different mindset and a different perspective. And I was also, I think I'd come to a point where I was like, okay, like I'm either going to quit or like, I'm going to completely change my life. And I was on the track of like, I'm going to completely change my life. And so I took the journal, like with a smile in my hand and I, and my a smile on my face, took the journal in my hand. And I went back to the psych ward and just did exactly what he told me. I wrote down every thought that I got. Um, and then I think maybe two days later, I ended up meeting with Ryan again, brought my journal and we would go through each thought and we'd be like, okay, like what's the truth here? Like, what's the overarching principle? Like what, like, why are these thoughts not true? Cause I, now I think I'm at a point where I'm aware enough of my thoughts that it's it's much easier now to just like, okay, I can notice the thought and just bring myself back. But back then, like my thoughts were so loud and like, so consuming that I needed something to like anchor me into the truth. Or I, I just believed my thoughts were true. So I needed something to help create some kind of like separation. So I would write down the truth, to every thought, and we would, even if I didn't fully believe it, I'd go through it with Ryan, we would go in And we'd basically go through every thought until I couldn't possibly believe that it was true anymore. Uh, And that was a really, really powerful process for me. And it's something that I still practice now. Um, And just, I think in that, just talking to someone else is also super helpful. And I think cultivating awareness of your thoughts and your feelings and having, you know, a sounding board and someone who will be present and listen to you and also, you know, Help guide you in the right direction.
0: For someone who grew up with two parents who, you know, are struggling with addiction um, and have been, you know, one too present, one too absent in your life, I would imagine trusting other people would be a challenge for you. How did you come to trust Ryan?
1: Wow. I don't know exactly. I think I had opened up before I opened up to Ryan, I'd opened up to one other person. And this person was someone who she was maybe a little bit a few years older than I was. Uh, I met her in the tennis program I was a part of. And just over I had known her probably for maybe a few years at that point. And she was always just so kind, like so kind, so loving, like just one of those people where when you're with them, it just it just feels good. And, um, I just always felt very supported and safe with her. And she was the first person I opened up to before that. I'd never really, I'd opened up about some things like maybe that my parents were struggling or like things were difficult at home, but I never opened up like, I think a looking glass into my internal world. I'd never shared the thoughts I was getting That like I wanted to die, that I was suicidal, that you know I hated myself and I hated life. I I never told people that, and so she was the first person I really laid that all, all out on. And her like only being a few years older than me, you know, she was there and she was present and she listened to me, and that was, you know, she helped save my life by doing that. But she was like, "This is a bit above my pay grade." Like I, I'm here for you, but I also don't know exactly how to support you through this. But I know someone in my life who's really helped me navigate challenging situations. And I think you should meet him. So of course, at first, I'm a little bit scared, like just this random person that I'm going to meet. And I've never told anyone how I I've felt before. And now I have to go and like tell a complete stranger pretty much. Uh, so I was nervous, but I think I had that trust in her. And I I think I was just at a point where like I needed somebody, like I, I needed someone to go to. I was pretty desperate, and I ended up she went with me, so she she sat with me during the conversation so I'd feel more comfortable and Ryan was the same way, like he was just so present um, and the cool thing with Ryan was I never. Part of the reason I didn't open up to people, I think, is because I never wanted people to pity me. I I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. Like I that wasn't that wasn't what I was trying to get at um, by like opening up to people. And Ryan like didn't pity me at all. If anything, it was like the opposite. He was basically like, you know, like this adversity like is a gift. And like if you if you handle this in the right way. Like it's gonna be the greatest gift of your life and you're gonna be able to help like so many other people. Um, and he was the first person that ever really like shared that with me. And I was like, whoa, like like I felt the opposite of pity and I felt empowered and I felt like, you know, I felt like I maybe had a chance at healing and a chance at like happiness in my life. So that was my first encounter with Ryan, but it for some reason I didn't have a hard time really trusting him
0: yeah when somebody's referred to you it makes it a lot easier right it, it yeah somebody you know like tinder or craigslist or anything <laughs> yeah like that. um and, and so that and i love that you said because you trusted her it allowed you to trust him right it's almost that idea of we we believe that who we surround ourselves with reflects on who we are as a person and so if if you feel safe around her and and her kindness, then you would assume that she would only surround herself with the, the same kind of people. That's beautiful. Yes. How do you balance the, the need for other people? Cause you said you recognize that you needed Ryan, you need, or you needed someone right with nurturing yourself. How do you find that balance?
1: I think, you know, having gone through like a very codependent relationship in my life, I I think I've seen the pitfalls of like over depending on other people or thinking that like, they're the source of your happiness. They're the solution. Um, whereas now, like, I think like Ryan was just a tool, like a part of my growth. Um, he, he wasn't the source. He wasn't, um, where I was getting my happiness from, or my love from, he was just someone that could help. I think the best like mentors or like people that help other people are the people that don't nurture dependency but like empower others to like find their own sense of love and you know figure out like what's right for them. And I think Ryan was so good at helping me you know find my own like inner truth and figuring out what that was for me and following that. And now like I'm at a point where I would say I'm not you know I'm not dependent on anyone else. For my happiness, but I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of people in my life that, you know, bring me joy or when I am struggling, you know, I know they're there to help guide me towards like my truest self. Um, but having walked the lines of codependency pretty thoroughly, I think I've, I've definitely found a good uh, balance of not depending on others, but also knowing that like relationships and people are so healing and so helpful and they're a resource and they're a tool. And I think sometimes talking to someone else is, you know, you nurturing yourself.
0: You you talked about in the journal, you, how you wrote down thoughts of, you know, I hate myself. um, You know, I hated my life. I wanted to die. When you look back on those thoughts, what was the, the bigger truth of it? When you it's just let's just take it thought by thought. When you say I hated myself, was it a part of yourself that you hated? Was that the full truth? How did you unpack that?
1: That's such a good question. I think, I mean, there are a lot of I think thoughts kind of like build off of each other. So I think you'll find that like it didn't just outright say like I hate myself, like out of nowhere. It was a buildup of things that i believed over time so whether that was you know i think i started to hate myself because i believed that it was my fault that my dad was suffering and that must mean that i'm like not like i'm not enough i'm not enough that was a big thing for me i felt like i wasn't enough and then therefore then i hate myself or like you know just i think a typical like teenage thing like i i hated the way i looked i i didn't like my body i um, you know, just like random things like that, and that came from who knows why it came from media, it came from social media, it came from my body was changing, I was going through puberty, like all these different like factors and things um and I think it really I think for the hate part, it was just a buildup of a lot of thoughts that I believed. so then, from going from like, okay, like I hate myself, but like where does that even like come from like why do I like what thoughts was I believing that like got me to the point where I was like, I hate myself. I want to die. Um, and that's like a list. I think a few things that were a buildup of things that I believed. Um, and so then it's like, once you map that out and you figure out the truth to that, like for me, I could, there's, I think there's individual truths to every thought, like for my dad, I'm not responsible for my dad. Like that's not, it's not in my control. It's not in my power. Um, and yeah, that's not a reflection of like my self-worth, like my dad makes his own choices and there's nothing I can really do about that. Uh, there were ways that I, I think I could have been better in the relationship, which I addressed and healed. Um, and part of being better in that relationship was stopping, believing those thoughts of like, that I was responsible. Like I had to stop taking responsibility for my dad and instead like, no, I need to take responsibility for myself and like. I need to let go of like this hatred that I have and I need to address that. And by doing that, then I'm able to like bring my best, most loving self to my dad. Um, and even then I couldn't, you know, there was nothing I could do to change him or his choices that was on him. Um,
0: well, it sounds like you had to set boundaries with your father. What did that sound like? And how difficult was that? Cause I know like in codependent relationships, setting healthy boundaries is so hard and then it's even harder to uphold those boundaries that you set it's one thing to say i'm going to do this there's another thing to actually follow through was was that something was that a discussion you had to have with your father
1: so very interesting so my our like i think my healing journey with my dad was uh, a lot of things um, so after so during the time of my two suicide attempts it was like, that was like a three month period of time where I had moved. I had a fight with my dad, which was not a rare occurrence. Um, but this fight was like particularly intense. And I went and I started living with my mom for three months and I did the same thing to my dad that I had done to my mom. And I completely cut him out. I wouldn't talk to him. I like, I refused to see him because like every time, well, during that time when I would left after that fight, my dad had, like ended up in the hospital for something along the lines of attempting to take his own life. Uh, I didn't know the details, but all I knew was that like, I felt very guilty and very responsible. And I also felt very angry. Like I almost took it personal. I was like, well, like, how could you do that to me? Like, I depend on you. Like I need you. And, and also I felt guilty. And I felt like it was my fault. It was a lot of confusing, conflicting emotions. Um, so from that phone call, getting getting that phone call from my dad being in the hospital to living with my mom for three months, like that's when I really I'd already been experiencing, I think, sadness and lack of self-worth and depression and anxiety and all those things. But that was kind of a tipping point for me where I really like fell into it. And I chose to just kind of sulk in those emotions and just kind of quit on my life. Like I stopped. I started skipping school. I stopped playing tennis. I, um, started hanging out with people that, you know, they were just navigating life, but you know, they, they definitely weren't the best influences on me. And I just stopped really caring about my life and like what I valued and what was important to me because I just didn't see a point in living anymore. And during that period of time, I was very angry, very sad. Um, and that's when my suicidal thoughts were like at an all-time high Uh, It felt like I think every single day pretty much was just constant, like suicidal ideation, just not wanting to live. Um, And so during that time, I like wasn't talking to my dad at all. And that wasn't healthy for me because I was doing it from this place of like anger and fear. And every time I talked to him, it felt like if I heard his voice, if I saw his face, it felt like it would bring up every ounce of like sadness, every ounce of anger that I'd ever like held onto in my life. And that sounds really like dramatic, but that's really how it felt. Like it felt like I would just explode if I saw him, uh, like I wouldn't be able to handle it. And so I just tried to avoid it. And in running away, I thought like suicide was an option or like that was the only way that I was going to be able to fully like escape the pain that I was feeling. Um, and after that, you know, I, like I talked about that moment with Ryan in the psychiatric hospital. I really like, in the hospital, I think what I realized is what I said earlier was that like, I'm not my thoughts and feelings. Like I can separate from them and I have agency and like power, like over my life and my happiness. And I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to heal, whatever it takes. And I, you know, took the leap to, you know, trust Ryan, but really trust myself. Like it was funny because everything Ryan said it wasn't like the you're not your thoughts was a little mind blowing for me, but it wasn't that mind blowing. Like when you hear something that's truthful, it's kind of like, Oh, like, yeah, like that's like, that's truthful. Like we all know it almost inside of us. And sometimes it just takes a little digging to get there. And so at that point, like, I was like, okay, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to heal. And Ryan's basically, well, are you ready to like confront your relationship with your dad? Cause like, that's what it's going to take. And I was like, Oh gosh. <laughs> um, but I did, I, I, I made a decision that like, you know, I'd just been running away for a long time and not confronting that relationship and not, I was just running away from my thoughts and feelings. So I was so scared of them. And so initially I, I made a deal with Ryan that I would like text my dad every day. So it started with text messages. Like I started texting him and obviously I, I saw him. In the hospital after I'd attempted to take my own life, and that was a very, I think, intense moment for both of my parents because I almost died, and that um, was really like I can't imagine what that was like, you know, for them to have to go through that. But, you know, I really like I was still pretty cut off from my dad at that point, and so it just started with text messages, and then slowly it like turned into like, okay, I'm going to call him every day, and then the phone calls were crazy, like. Honestly like the most difficult probably thing I've ever done in my life but also like the most beautiful and most rewarding and the thing I'm most grateful for in my life because in those phone calls like I had to like confront everything um and I had to kind of practice like meditation and mindfulness on the deepest level during those phone calls because it's like all right like everything's coming up inside of me like all I can do is breathe like all I can do is breathe through these things and it was this practice of learning how to stay calm on the phone with him because my dad got pretty, um, my dad always struggled with rage and like anger. But after my suicide attempt, for some reason, his rage really like took on a different hat. Like my dad would get angry and he was very like intimidating and scary when I was little. And he'd like, you know, he would say some mean things and he'd like throw things and it it was scary, but these phone calls were like, felt like a direct target, like on me like it was like you are the reason that like I want to die like you're the reason that I drink like you know just like oh like call me a whore and like you know that was a worthless piece of shit and like all of that stuff and it was kind of like it was very intense because those were thoughts and feelings I already got about myself and so to have like this second person that you really like you know you really value tell you those things it's like oh god like double like double whammy. And it was so cool, though, because in that, like it allowed me, I think, to heal on the deepest levels and like to find love on the deepest levels. And for me, when I say love, like really love, I think is just the absence of hate, like the absence of like feeling like ill feelings towards my dad. Like I was able to get to a point where I could like go through these phone calls with him and have nothing but like love and empathy in my heart and peace um and i would listen to him for like 3 hours he would rage he would scream and because i was patient and i waited like i just started to see that like just like i struggled with my thoughts and feelings like so did my dad like everything he was saying had nothing to do with me like it literally like i it was like when i stayed calm enough i could see it so clearly i was like oh like he's literally just talking to himself he could yell for 3 hours straight without me saying a word and I just started to realize like, oh, like he just doesn't like he doesn't know how to separate himself like from that voice in his head. And um, it was a really, really beautiful experience because in the midst of like all like, you know, my own triggers and then him saying these things like I was able to let go of my like negative thoughts and feelings and also let go of his for him. And in those moments, you know, we'd have I call them little moments of like clarity or little moments of seeing like my dad's name was Larry, like the real Larry, where. You know, he would, um, he would just, he would scream, he would yell, he'd say all these things. And then he'd be like, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know why I'm saying, like, I don't know why I'm doing this. And then then he'd be like, but I hate you. And then it would go like in a cycle again. But I had those moments where I could be patient enough to like, see the real him. And even if I didn't have those moments, I knew like that, that wasn't who he was. And that, that was my personal journey. I don't recommend that to everyone. Um, I don't think that's like, I don't think my journey is like the journey for everyone, but I do think my journey really allowed me to let go of my hate, um, which ties in like perfectly to like getting interviewed for the, I hate you, but it's killing me movie. And, you know, that was just my journey of what it took for me, I think, to really, really heal at the deepest level.
0: You talked about, you know, that you ended with, I hate you, but it's killing me, right? And being a part of that movie. That, to me, denotes that there is some hope that you had about your future. There was something in your future that you're like, it's killing me, and if it kills me, I won't be able to get to X, Y, or Z. Was there something in the future that was pulling you forward through this process?
1: Wow. I think I, ha- I definitely had hope for peace in my life. I think one of the things I really appreciated about Ryan um, was, you know, I think the best leaders lead by example, right? And, you know, Ryan had been through his challenges in his life and he was someone that I saw that like had been through tough times, who had struggled, but also like had just this profound like peace. And love for life, and I was like, "Wow! Like I want that. I I really want that." And you know, there was people like that that showed me like, if they can do it, I can do it. And so I do think I did have a hope for, you know, that I could find I could find peace and I I could find love, and that hope was like, you know, at the time it was just like pulling me through, and now like being where I'm at today, it's like beyond what I ever could have imagined. like far beyond what I imagined as like a young person just trying like to go through it. Like just this profound sense of, I think, love and appreciation for life that I never really thought I would, I had hope. but I never thought it would reach the level that it's reached, you know?
0: Talk to me about tennis. Where does tennis come into play in all this? Uh, There's a book called Zen and the art of tennis or the tennis, some, some Zen, something like that. Anyway. I used to play racquetball as a kid, but how did tennis, you know, become a part of your life?
1: So actually I I started in tennis uh, when I was really young, like maybe five or six with my dad. So had a really complicated relationship with tennis for a long time. Uh, My dad pushed me very hard in anything that I did, Um, he always wanted me to really like excel, but sometimes you know, he pushed a little, a little too hard. Um, and that was hard. Uh, and it seemed like over time, like tennis became this thing where like, it was just an outlet for my dad to like let out his rage. And so we'd like go and we'd practice for hours and he'd scream at me. And that, that was the source of actually a lot of our fights. Um, when I was younger, uh, was tennis, if I like didn't win or, you know, had an attitude or like, didn't perform well, or, you know, wasn't like being listening well or whatever it was. Uh, so actually tennis was, uh, it brought up a lot for me. I loved tennis, but I started to hate that too. Um, and, but tennis, like, it's funny. Cause when I look back on, I always thought I was going to play like, you know, division one tennis. Like my dad wanted me to be pro, like this like big dream, you know, and I actually ended up not doing any of that. Uh, I play club tennis at college, which is super fun and I love it and super grateful for it, but tennis was so much more than a sport. It really was, I think another thing, just like the phone calls with my dad that triggered me, that gave me the opportunity to like, like, I love triggers. I'm like, trigger me, like trigger me away because I like, I want to heal this. Um, and obviously in manageable doses, but. Um, tennis was definitely something that triggered me, and it was this practice of you know tennis is a very like mental sport, and you're kind of like unless you're playing doubles, you're pretty like it's just you and yourself out there and so for me, it was such a great practice of like mindfulness and learning how to let go like negativity and ego and all of these things and it it honestly was an outlet for me to heal like my relationship with my dad too like it seemed the more that I healed my relationship with my dad, like it translated into tennis too. Um, because the principle is the same. It's just learning how to not like, listen, listen to this, to this voice in your head. Um, and tennis opened up so many doorways for me. Like i never would have met Shelby was the girl who I initially opened up to I never would have met her. I never would have met Ryan. Um, so tennis like became this thing for me that was just far beyond, uh, a game.
0: Wow. Yeah. Are there principles from tennis that you have been able to apply to your life? And I ask this because, you know, there's so many books on chess and there's so many metaphors and analogies for chess in life. Are there things that you learned from tennis that you've applied to your own life?
1: Yeah, um, definitely. (laughs) I would say I think a big practice of really mindfulness. was huge in tennis because you, you have to, like, you can't be in your head, like you have to be present, like to perform. Um, and so I would say that like, just honestly, just nurturing the ability to like stay present and to not feed like the negative thoughts and feelings. Um, and tennis is a great outlet for that. Cause it just kept me very, like I had something to bring myself back to something to focus on. I think, and my dad, I think really instilled hard work in me at a young age, but obviously I think any sport, um, can instill that like work ethic and hard work and like earning your way. And, uh, we talk about in the foundation, we talk about grind before you shine and, you know, really like putting in the effort day in and day out. And, um, yeah, just like, I think it's the same for life. Like you have to, happiness doesn't just come to you like you do, you have to earn it every day. Like, like you talked about earlier, I think what were ways that you, um, like loved yourself earlier nurtured that in you. And it's like, I have to, like, I meditate every single day without fail multiple times a day. Like I exercise almost every day. Um, I try to eat really clean, like just, you know, I, I want to put myself in a position where I like, I'm building my happiness every day. Um, and it's not, it's not just this thing that you get and then it's like, okay, you have it and it's over. Like, no, it's something that I think I've had to work for. Um, and something that I continue to earn every day. And I think I'm out of the trenches now of like, before it was like really hard work. Like it was like, oh gosh, like to get up and to like, even just like meditate, like I have to sit with my thoughts or like, oh, I have to call my dad. Like, this is going to be so hard. And, um, all those things, like, Eventually, like, it's like anything, the more you, the more you practice, the easier it gets. And so now it's just like staying diligent and consistent and nurturing that happiness every day. And uh, that's something I think I really value having been at such a low low. I never want to find myself at that point again. So I do the things that it takes to, I think, nurture, you know, what I found.
0: It's clear that you're a writer. Um, the fact that you took journaling so well because not, not everybody can do that or will do that or is willing to do that or open to it. Um, and writers are usually readers. Have you read something? Have you read a book that, you, that you've reread or that you felt really spoke to you?
1: So it's very interesting you say that because I actually, my dad used to force me to read <laughs> when I was younger and I really... I liked it sometimes, like there were some books I read that I liked, but for the most part, I really didn't like reading, um, and I'm still not an avid reader. I love writing, so I don't know, like, I don't know why I do not like to read, but I love to write. I love to write. Um, like, if I at school, like, they give you essays, I'm like, yes, like, give me more essays. The math, science part, not so much, but um, I have definitely, like, I wouldn't say I'm an avid reader and it's something that I actually, I want to start reading more, but I have read a few books that I think have been really beneficial to me in my growth. Uh, One was I really like autobiographies. I, I really love meeting people and I love hearing people's stories and what they've been through. So there's one autobiography by Jewel. Uh, called Never Broken. Songs are only half the story. And she's a, a singer. Uh, she's still a singer songwriter, but she was really big in the nineties and um, she was homeless. And, you know, she really did a lot of kind of the work that I talked about earlier of like earning your happiness. She really like did that. And she was really inspirational. I read that book probably right after I'd attempted to take my own life. And so it was really fresh for me. And I actually ended up getting to meet her and she be, she's become like a mentor in my life. And, um, she, uh, helps with the youth foundation that I grew up in that Ryan runs. And, um, so that was like a really like unique thing that happened in my life. But I would say that book is on the top list. Uh, I have a few others, but I think that one was a big one for me and any really, like, I love reading like any kind of book about, I only like books that are about like self improvement, I guess, or like growth or, or or personal stories. I'm not so much into novels or things like that. It's more like Eckhart Tolle, Thich Nhat Hanh, Mary Margaret Funk, like all these different kind of like spiritual, I guess, leaders that, um, you know, just kind of talk about personal growth and healing. And that's what I'm into. But
0: so talk to me about this documentary that you're a part of. And uh, what can people expect? What is it about?
1: Yeah. So the documentary is incredible and I'm not just saying that to say it. Um, It really, really is. It's very moving. Like, obviously like I'm featured in the film, but there's so many stories um, in that film that are so like, they're so heart wrenching, but also like so inspirational. And I think anyone who has held on to hate in their life or is still holding on to hate and, you know is looking for healing this movie is definitely like for them um really for i think everyone because i think we all go through we all go through suffering we all go through pain and it looks like every story in the film is like totally different um and i think that's life like we all as humans we all have these different life experiences um no experience is the same as the other but i think even through that, there is something like similar. Like we are all human. We all, we all go through suffering at some point. We all hurt. Um, we all hate at some point. And you know, this movie is so, I think it captures that so well. And it also captures the healing so well and you know how that's possible. And for me, like getting to like, I think I was maybe 16 when I was interviewed for this movie. So it's been a while. Um, so it was pretty fresh uh, then. And my, my father had just passed away at the time. So like everything was very, very fresh. And um, it was a beautiful experience, I think, even just getting to like talk to you on this podcast, getting to, I think, share my experiences, um, what I've learned, how I've grown. And really my hope is that it just shows people like, no matter like what you're going through, like that the pain it's temporary and that healing is possible. And I definitely think this movie is an ode to that. Um, and I, for the more technical details, it um, premieres on November 11th, which is on a Friday. Uh, open all access. Um, people from all over the world can access it. Um, and the website is IHateYouButIt'sKillingMe.com. And afterwards, there is going to be a Q&A with myself and uh, other people that are featured in the film which I think will be really cool for people to get to just, you know, ask the questions that are on their hearts. And yeah, I just think, I think this movie can help so many people because it it really is just, it's storytelling and it's, you know, showing what that healing journey looks like and what, what pain looks like. too.
0: Wow. We're definitely going to have to have you back on the podcast because you're only you're right now. Now I almost said you're only 21, but that's diminishing. (laughs) I'm learning that in my cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, you're 21, and I'd be so curious to see where you are 5, 10, 15, uh, 20 years from now. And uh, last question, I like to ask this of all my guests. is always imagine there's one person listening in on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Cheryl? I
1: think I would just say, like, It's temporary. I used to think that my pain was forever. And I think that was a big reason why I didn't want to live anymore is I thought like that would that pain, that suffering would be my whole life. But it is temporary and healing is possible. Um, And there's so many like myself included, like I'm here for you. (laughs) And, you know, just just know it's temporary and that healing is possible. And all those, those thoughts and those feelings, they may feel really real and really true right now, but I can assure you that they're not, they're all lies. Um, so I guess that in a short way, that's what I would say.
0: Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you so much listeners for tuning in. Remember this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. calling the 1-800-OOPS, the new 988 number. That's right. There's a new suicide hotline number 988. So much easier for you to access. If you're if you're if you're international, if you're in Budapest or the Ukraine or Shanghai or Toronto, wherever you are in the world, down there in a uh, Peru, 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 I never know how to pronounce it. Um, wherever you are, there are international suicide hotline numbers for you. You can call, you can chat, you can text. Uh, you can find your Ryan. That's the that's that's what this is all about. There's a Ryan out there for everybody. Find your Ryan. Uh, that, that sounds like a. a <laughs> Like a website, findyourryan.com. <laughs> um, it should exist. It
1: really should. Uh,
0: and uh, you can always go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo and get your 10% off your first month. That's right, betterhelp.com. And no matter where you are in the world, you can also access their multitude of therapists within 48 hours. That's the coolest thing 48 hours. They'll link you up with a therapist. And then if you don't like that therapist, find you another one. Um, Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for being here, Cheryl. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me and talking to me. And this was awesome.